I've been sitting with um, like some of those like complicated nuances of like trying to divest from capitalism, but shit, everything is capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I think about all the time is that there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. And the first time I heard it, I was so fucking pissed because I thought that I could make all these decisions individually that would, you know, lessen the harm upon other people. But it doesn't come down to me as the individual to change the system. Like, we really just need everyone to agree that this is not working for everyone. And we know that that's never going to happen because so many people are profiting from it. But then, at the same time, to simply just say I'm not going to do anything anymore because there's nothing I can do doesn't really satisfy me either, since there are decisions we can make in terms of, you know, consumption, so buying less, actively not hoarding products. Um, I'm laughing because COVID and the toilet paper and the paper towels, I mean, just that is out of control. (laughs) I'm just like, what is, you're going to need something for your chest more than your ass. Like, I just, like, I don't know any better. (laughs) Toilet paper, toilet paper. Okay, but it's so, it's so easy to get into that mentality. I remember when I saw toilet paper at the store for the first time in like a month, I wanted to take three home with me. And I thought, the fuck do you need this for? Like, (laughs) what's your problem? But there's a, there, I mean, come on. There's a, like, you've been in the toilet on the toilet. At least I've been on the toilet that that one time, and you go to reach for the toilet paper, and you're like, oh shit, there's none there, and you like lift up. Oh shit, there's none under there. Do are we out of toilet paper or? But <laughs> so do you need thirty six jumbo rolls I, I, at a time? I, I, I'm trying but to help. But it was the along. last pack on the aisle. But why did you need the last pack on the aisle? <laughs> because my white privilege tells me that I'm entitled to that. Honestly, I just think we are unable to see that if we all just purchase things at a reasonable volume, there As will forever be enough for yeah. everyone. Like, why are we panicked? I see paper towels. Bulk is fancy. Like, let's buy in bulk, y'all. Oh, so true. Like, what we 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 pretty much incentivize bulk purchasing. Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. Let's hit him with the remix. Oh, y'all got to change that. Yes. What do we do? Becca, like, go to town on some questions. Let's tell some stories. The elevator pitch I've got for it is how to live a good life while your whole life falls apart. Okay. Out of the the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and I think out of the overflow of the spirit, the body does. Why, Why is that the best that God could offer you? Mike made it very clear that he did not want to get any of these questions beforehand. So he is getting this question live, raw, for the very first time. This is... Um, yeah. And I feel like art is the expression of the heart where uh, words fail. Yeah. 
Oh my goodness, I have tears. Oh, you all are killing it. I'm filtered. Permission to be. Uh, actually, my 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 literary agent, when we were talking about what book might I write, he was like, I mean, A Black Man with Hope is an interesting book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Yo, what up, friends? Welcome to the Permission to Be podcast. Um... <laughs> I feel like Yo, every time I do an intro, <laughs> I feel like every time I do an intro, I can't get through it without like laughing or. Tell me to shut off my camera so you don't you don't feel like laughing. <laughs> <laughs> we got another friend of the pod coming on. Um, actually, this is uh my friend Vicky Fanaby. What's up, Vicky? Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Do you you want to tell them the story of how you came to be on Permission to Be? Sure. Um, I don't remember when I first messaged you. I'm pretty sure I just said, hi, Tommy, can I be on your podcast? And you said, yeah. (laughs) And so now I'm here. (laughs) Is that easy? Is that easy, y'all? It really is, folks. (laughs) For the most part, like, I will say that as I'm putting my nine-year-old to bed tonight, he asked, have you ever had anybody on the podcast that is, like, mean and, like, you don't like? And I said, no, like, we, you know, we kind of talk to people and find out he's like, so so would you have Trump on the podcast? I said, no, I don't know. We censor him. Yeah. Censorship all the way. He does not need another platform. He has enough. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. I know, but that's just crazy that we had to, like I was like, no, we don't just let anybody be on the podcast. <laughs> there is some vetting. Thank goodness. There is some it vetting. Is. So Vicky passes the vetting process. <laughs> <laughs> so um Vicky, in addition to being a a stellar human and, and a great friend, um we said she is a regular smegular girl. Her word, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> but also, Vicky is a young urban planning professional. Um, and I guess we'll get to unpack some of that. But uh, what I, what, on a serious note, what I, what I really love and adore, and there, there was no hesitation when Vicky was like, I want to be on the podcast because... Um, the the knowledge and care in which Vicky walks through life um, mm. is is absolutely phenomenal. And as we talk about what does it mean to center the voices of Black women, mm. um, I, I I think that you are you exemplify why we need to do that. So welcome. Thanks for having me. The beautiful thing about this is I have no idea where we want to start this conversation because we already started talking about some amazing things. (laughs) May or may not make it to this part. (laughs) (laughs) Might have to do some magical editing. (laughs) Very little because we try not to edit too much. But um, tell me, let's unpack what, what, what does it mean? to be young urban planning professional because when i think about urban i mean i'm gonna just be honest that's typically synonymous with black 
<laughs> well, funny you might say that because black people have not been centered mm-hmm. in urban planning work mm. at all. I, I actually I'll say that it's hard it's hard for me to say something about urban planning because it's so vast and mm-hmm. all these you have all these little touchstones within it in which people focus on. But planning has an incredibly racist history, as pretty much everything you've ever liked. You go back and you're like, damn, that's pretty racist yeah. origin story. Yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> yep. Every day, learning something else. All yep. the time. But ur- urban planning was definitely a tool of segregation. So you have uh, zoning policies that contributed to discrimination where people said that you didn't want to house black people or you had predominantly black communities that were underserved so they wouldn't um, bring resources into the community. They had a lack of green space, uh, poor environmental protections. So some of the cases that are popular would be Pruitt-Igo, which was one of the most prominent affordable housing communities developed in the U.S. And if you ever have the time to do a quick search on it, it ended in disaster. Um, mm. There's it, there's so many little like case studies throughout time from urban planning in which you have low-income communities. And instead of focusing development around how you can bring them up and improve projections for... Um, their economics, their health care, you just decide that we're not going to spend money on it because it's not worthwhile. And it, yeah, I mean, they don't think it, urban planning was very, and I actually will say that it still is, but it's very much so focused on profit. And I could go on forever about this, but when we talk about things like gentrification and affordable housing, a lot of people haven't moved past the idea that you won't always make money from helping other people. You won't always yeah. make money from affordable housing. And sometimes you honestly just have to subsidize it. You have to just give it to people because they can't contribute to the community in a way that they probably could if they had consistent access to shelter. This, these are things that happened, you know, prior to when I came into planning. However, over the last five years that I have been studying planning and am now working at a nonprofit that does advocacy for equitable development, uh, a lot of the conversation has shifted, not just not just into zoning, not just into affordable housing, but into transportation as well. So, how can we ensure that people? Um, in low-income communities actually have transit. So you look at D.C. and uh, we have um, low-income communities in which people are essential workers that don't actually have access to transit, that transit-oriented communities are the most expensive to live in, but these people, people who live in these transit-oriented communities necessarily don't, don't all necessarily go into work. 
So you have folks who, it, it, so much of it is like a system of here's a need and here's us not meeting it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the reason for that is uh, racism, discrimination, funding, yep. mm-hmm. and the people who are in charge of making these what could be monumentally life-changing equitable decisions are like white people who live in communities yep. that don't want to be tainted by low-income housing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and wow. so some of the biggest shifts in the last few years have been to uh, upzone, so getting rid of single-family housing, which would allow for denser, more affordable developments. Um, you have people who are pushing for um, mixed-income housing, so ensuring that you don't just build affordable housing in random spots. So it's, there's a common trend in which people will build low-income units or like a purely affordable housing complex, but they'll put it in an incredibly inconvenient spot. So they're going to, whatever they've saved on housing is now going to be spent on transportation. So ensuring that, so taking into consideration access to opportunity, uh, healthcare, um, whatever else that people need in a city. The 15 minute community is getting more popular. So ensuring that you can get to every single essential resource within 15 minutes of walking. So I can, you know, get to the grocery store, walk, Mm. get to work, walking, daycare, walking, all of those things. And then there's also been a push to center the needs of marginalized communities. So you're, we're getting a lot of um, planning departments that are black and they focus Mm -hmm. on black communities. We're seeing more people say that I treat the city as a client and I'm the therapist. So when I am trying to assess its needs, it's not in terms of what can I just give you and see what happens over time. I am sticking with you and constantly reevaluating what we can do. And Mm. to me, when I think of planning and what I want to see happen with planning is that I want more of that. Yeah. And it, I think it's going to happen, but I do think that people are slowly becoming stagnant with how it's going to happen. So I could talk on and on about how my, my job while I came in with really idealized views, I realized that the same people who are talking about equity and development don't actually care that much about it, or they have mm-hmm. what I consider to be very, very limited views, very limited scope of what could happen over time. So, for example, we talk, we tried to have a discussion about how we can fold in Native communities in our work, since so much of what we're doing we talk about equity and growth Mm -hmm. is happening on native land. And we try to, you know, say like, if we don't acknowledge the land that we're on, if we're not including native communities into this work, we're no better than what we've been trying to address over the last 10 years or the last 20 years. And 
people just are not vibing with that. <laughs> they think it takes away from existing struggles, which to me is kind of insulting, right? Because Native struggles are like present day struggles. So are just, yes. like, yeah. Yeah. Like, yes. When you look at the numbers, like they're, they're the most killed by the police, health disparities. They have the yeah. most greater, greater number of health disparities. Um, and <laughs> Sex and just traffic like, numbers so, yeah. like just on every and every single metric like indigenous native people are are getting discarded like not even pushed to the margins just simply discarded it's, mm-hmm. it's disgusting yeah or or another thing is that we focus a lot on incentivizing developers to want to build affordable housing which i get that they're the ones who would be investing in that but i think relying on a developer to meet the needs is kind of stupid like i mean i i, I, I wonder work, why <laughs> i work in a developer coalition and so i have been on these calls and they all seem like fine people but in the middle of a pandemic in which people are struggling to meet rent the fact that i have to listen to these people go on and on saying that like i i am not getting money from my renters of course like of course you're not like shit's terrible right now when cities are dying yeah when i think that municipalities should be the ones responsible for providing this Mm -hmm. like if there is if there is strong enough need for whatever resource not even just housing public space um health facilities things like that i don't know why we've spent so much time creating tax credits or um funds for developers and people who may not even be local to right. do this yeah. work. When if the city actually gave a fuck and got their shit together and the federal government actually provided great subsidies, things like that, they could handle this very much so on their own. Mm. But because it's not the case, so much of the conversation is, okay, well, let's give this developer a 25% tax credit on the first year that they build this and then that way when they build this 200 unit apartment building they we will have 25 units that are below market rate and the others will be above market rate and then (laughs) on top of that the materials for building incredibly expensive so they have to make the money back somehow so whatever low-income units are made available they're going to increase the rate of other ones which will then increase to me I don't know. I haven't really tested this theory, so I hope that nobody checks me if they ever listen to this podcast. But to me, it seems like it's going to not is not going to have that great of an impact on the neighborhood. It just doesn't make sense to me. So every day I'm at work and I'm thinking, hmm, this seems unimpressive. Or I think maybe I'm bad at math, but I don't understand how this will actually change anything. And it, it, yeah, it's it's all just like. These are the things I think about all the time. And maybe I didn't explain it very well, but that's no, the... No, I worked in Nashville. I, when I lived in Nashville I, um, for a year or so, I worked for a developer who was... They treated me as an employee very well. But what I didn't understand is that those units and, or those condos and that high rise, that small percentage that was affordable, were still way more than I could afford or qualify for. And Nashville has... Well, I think it's going to change, or maybe it has, but this was 10 years ago, has horrendous public transit as far as availability. And so I'm like, so these units are for white 
people just getting off their feet after college. Like, I don't understand what the units were for. Like, I don't, you know, thinking about that, I'm like, uh, what were like? What was the purpose of providing lower income units and to purchase? And these were to purchase. These weren't apartments, and so these were to purchase. And you know, it was this big thing, like, oh, we're doing this nice thing. And I'm like, but you're not really. <laughs> it's really interesting because I'm as you're sitting here talking, like I'm learning in real time, and 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 things are sort of firing for me. The Last person that we had on this podcast, Ray McKinnon, one of his interests um, in one of his areas of justice work as well is, is, is housing justice. And when I think about, um, I don't know if you saw the the economic mobility report that came out a couple years ago, in which they ranked like cities. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So like Charlotte was like dead last in in, in that ring. <laughs> yeah. It always oh, tops the list of growing cities for young professionals to move to though. <laughs> right. White young professionals. <laughs> thinkers, yep. Um anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so but it it in in understanding these, hearing you, hearing you talk through some of that, these are, and I've I've been able to listen to some of our city council meetings where they talk about like um, zoning and 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 how transportation begins to intersect with this. And I've also been to I guess some more progressive cities like you live in, currently you live in Washington D.C. right, mm-hmm. and they they have some policy where a percentage of each building has to be set aside for affordable income? Uh, it depends on the development because okay. like for you, if you want to use, for example, the low income tax credit, I don't, I have to reread the rules or like any other tax credit incentive. It'll say either the entire structure has to be below market rate or you have to have um, this proportion be below market rate, this proportion be be- or at market rate and then this proportion be above market rate so sometimes you get a mix Mm, okay yeah okay um but not only that i think what was really shocking to me was to recognize the influence that citizens of cities have in housing development but we actively create policy that shut people out from affordable options um and we act with great policy that prevents transport from going into certain transportation options for going into certain neighborhoods and i can't help but think about during the campaign 45 um alluded to protecting the suburbs <laughs> quite often and when he said that like my, my mind immediately went to to, to housing justice um because so often we, we look at suburbs as like the picture of what you know it, it, this is who America is this is the American dream and then we or go white into, people right. <laughs> the picket fence the, <laughs> the house with all the white people in the front mm-hmm. yard mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah the suburbs are incredibly segregated spaces the c- cities are becoming like there has been a shift in which people low-income people of color have been pushed out of urban areas because those are now incredibly walkable, profitable spaces. 
which is what's happening here. Yeah, it fucking sucks because, you know, these areas that used to be considered dingy, dangerous, are now getting an influx of, you know, young white people, sometimes retirees who just want to be close to the action. They get an expensive condo or people who used to live there vacate their homes. The home is knocked down and then you have a brand new like luxury tower going up in its place. And so when Trump said that, right? So there has been a, he was just saying like white people, I'm going to protect your assets because the worst thing that could happen to someone, right? Who owns a property is that you have other people who are enjoying the same luxuries as you. Like you don't want to share that stuff because then it's not a luxury anymore, supposedly. But like, come on, <laughs> everyone deserves. Absolutely. <laughs> Everyone deserves housing. That is a bait. Like to me, that there's no reason why someone in the states should be unhoused if they didn't want to be. We have every resource available to us to ensure that every single person has. Say that, amen. Yeah. It's just yep, a matter yep. of us not prioritizing that, and it's really mind-boggling to me, right? That people are disgusted by the sight of those who are unhoused because you don't want to see them on the street, but to actually put in policies and support and vote for policies that would ensure that they get housing is just unfathomable to people. The thing that they, as offensive it is to them to see people on the street, it's more offensive for them to be directed to give their money to, to helping end it. <laughs> I personally don't care, right? You tax me to put people to house individuals. I don't give a shit. Like, that's how it should be. Yeah. I'm not upset about that. Like, why would the, why would my life enjoyment be detracted upon knowing that somebody else was able to access housing or shelter at a lower rate due to my tax payment. That doesn't make sense to me Mm -hmm. because I know how good it is to come back after work, enter a space that is my own, use a bathroom that's my own, and sleep in a bed that's my own. Mm -hmm. So I don't really understand how we as people who claim to be empathetic or willing, wanting to see the success of others would just not want to support something like that. I think about this all the time. Like shelters are not meeting the need. We know that. And yet people are saying like, I want, what'd you say? Dismally so. Dismally so. It's terrible. They're terrible. Well, and with COVID, now we have huge tent cities because, you know, of course, if you're in a shelter, you don't want to be with COVID and getting contracted. So, I mean, there are sections of our city now along highways that are just full of tents. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, so here's our visual. Literally, it's not hidden in a shelter way. It's not like right there off 277 and 
Davidson, Charlotte people. Well, um, even so, the thing that baffles me with that, and and this is we. I just started reading the Color of Law. Uh, I got that for my Audible book of the month, um, and it focuses on racist housing policy history. Um, but we just <laughs> it white supremacy is so insidious built into our culture that we just had a law um a court case happen um in which a, a immigrant who owns a business sued the city to have the tent cities removed because they looked unsightly where are they gonna go and i just thought right and i, I was but the combination of everything that was happening there, I was just like, mm. whoa, whoa. Yeah. And, and so what I, what, where I want to go with that though, Vicky is um, sort of talk a little bit more personally about what got you into housing justice, into urban planning um, and sort of how you ar arrived here what comprises of vicky thanaby and your experiences in america in 2020 <laughs> uh so my my arrival at urban planning was i have a great story about it mostly <laughs> i was i was a civil engineering major no i have to backtrack a bit so Back in, I think it was my sixth or seventh grade year of middle school, I oh, went yeah. to a summer camp. I guess it's actually, this camp is so great. I hope it's still going on. It's at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, I think. And it was a women's science camp, engineering camp, like a STEM camp for the summer. It's awesome. It was so great. I went three years in a row. <laughs> And we just we got to make rockets. I got to learn about space travel. Um, we played games. It was the ultimate camp. It was just you and your girls like, okay, we're going to build rockets. And then tonight we're going to do karaoke. And it was just everything you could ever want at summer camp. And like you're just hanging out in a college dorm for uh. five straight days. It was amazing. Mm. And it was First there all, this is dope because um, rockets and women and representation. Uh, whoa! <laughs> and a lot of the women who were camp counselors were uh, international students at the university, so they were all women of color. It was oh, it was phenomenal. Like what a oh, camp! Okay. Oh. I I hope they're still going on. It was just unbelievable. Some of the best. It was, I mean, it was only 15 days in total because I only went three times. But once I went back as a camp counselor, so actually, no, I went 20, it was 20 full days of being at the University of St. Thomas campus across three summers. Just the best thing to have happened to me because I met great friends there. I met people who, none of us actually went into engineering, <laughs> but it was such a foundational experience in which you have other women saying to you, a young girl of 13, 14, you can do whatever you want to. 
that whatever creative energy you have now, maintain it. Whatever goals you have for yourself, keep them, meet them. It's all possible. And it was the first time that someone had said to me, not on the basis of my gender necessarily, that like, I can, I can do whatever I want. That the, the things that I can attain don't have to be within the confines of marriage or motherhood. That I can, I can have those things, but that like, we didn't talk about that. It was more like, here's something that you can do with your life that you will enjoy. And it was, it was coming from women from all different parts of the US, all different parts of the world who said, yeah, like I did it. And so from that moment on, I wanted to be an engineer. cannot do math i'm bad at it <laughs> i'm also you need really, to tutor you <laughs> I'm, also real, I'm real terrible at chemistry and so i had a come to jesus moment where i was sitting in my chem lab and i realized i don't know what any of this means like the way i'm doing these problems nobody should trust me to do anything like i i cannot do that <laughs> yeah so <laughs> My roommate is also now my best friend, one of my closest friends. She said to me, Vicky, I heard of this community and regional planning program, which is just like civil engineering, but no math. And I was like, girl, yes. So the next day I called my dad and I said, I'm not going to be a civil engineer anymore. And he was like heartbroken because he had this dream of me achieving great things, making a lot of money. And I basically was saying on the phone, I'm going to be poor forever not true but you just felt like that's okay if you have immigrant parents they only know engineering um (laughs) engineering law doctor if you don't do any of those things your financial security up in the air like i don't know (laughs) so i called him i said i'm not doing this shit anymore and he said i'm concerned i said okay hung up the phone (laughs) (laughs) so am i (laughs) I walked <laughs> walked into uh the like the engineering I don't know what I don't remember which office it was but I basically told my engineering um student advisor I'm not doing this I can't I'm switching and then she said to me I understand but I think she also knew like this girl can't she can't do this like she's she really is so bad at math so I switched over to community regional plan planning blindly I, I just basically thought my roommate would never lie to me about <laughs> what this is about. It's my best friend. Yeah, <laughs> so the following Monday, I started community and regional planning. And what a journey. Because I, like one, it, everything there, everything about it resonated with me. And it, we weren't necessarily learning about equity at that point in time because that didn't come for me until uh, after I really graduated. But just thinking about how 
how communities and cities are made and how so much of what we now know to be a city or a suburb was such a massive departure from from medieval cities Mm. that those were incredibly walkable, compact spaces. And then you bring in the automobile and suddenly we can go further. So why put people close together? And then you have uh, World War, the Second World War, where you have people coming back and we're actually giving them money to move out to the suburbs. Mm. And I thought, wow, we really- White people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, you're right. The <laughs> bill was not available <laughs> to Black people. Okay, yes. But um, it was there that I, I thought we could- we have the power as planners to develop beautiful, walkable communities that are focused on green space. And with that, we could be reducing, uh, we, could be, we could be improving our climate resiliency, making more sustainable places. And I thought, why the hell aren't we? And throughout the course of the next three, three and a half years, while doing planning, I was just inundated with all this information about like how how does how do you plan for a community that is um, predominantly uh, ESL, where not every person yeah. or maybe not every person speaks English? How do you develop community engagement plans for them? And so when and I would say that at this point in time, my understanding of race and <laughs> equity were not sophisticated. I wouldn't say they're sophisticated now, but they're better. So a lot of what I'm saying is in hindsight, right? That there were situations that I was a part of that were really shifting things for me mentally, where I was less focused on what I was when I was a civil engineer, which was make a lot of money, be really wealthy, get a fancy car get a fancy house, um, visit resorts every single year with the money that I made being a really wealthy engineer. And it shifted towards living in a walkable community, engaging with my neighbors, ensuring that everyone has a chance to succeed, Um, undoing the impact of suburbanization and uh, yeah, all those things. And um, So basically, I graduated from that program, but the final semester that I was there, I did an international planning course with a man named Francis Owoso, who is uh, a really notable planner and lecturer in which we were taught pretty much the same fundamentals of planning where, you know, this is how you meet the need of the community Again, wasn't really focused on equity necessarily, but that's where I actually thought I could do this same work, but I could do it in an international context. So I did my master's at like immediately after graduating because I didn't like, I really was not about those community planning jobs locally. I really wanted to move abroad and study and do international planning. I decided to go directly to grad school and do my master's in international relations. And there I focused more on um, ungoverned spaces. So places that necessarily, not necessarily are under the, the watch or the regulation of um, a government. 
Okay. So we're talking indigenous communities. I think that there's a lot to learn from them as they're, they do everything on their own. They are actively, they, they may not be staying in one spot, but I do find that there's a lot to be pulled from the experience of those who are able to regulate themselves, feed every single person in the, in the community, everything else that a city does just in a, just drastically different context than what we have initially understood. But I would say that's probably my weakest uh, area. Um, I would love to learn more about it, but I, I specifically wanted to learn more about uh, informal settlements and how those operate. So during my time there uh, in grad school, we were required to do an international internship. And so I emailed this woman named Teresa Williamson. And I said, I would like to come work for your organization in Rio. Would that be cool? And she said, yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) we did an interview, but she basically said, you know that you're not going to get paid me. Yeah. When will you be able to come? June. Great. See you then. Okay. Fantastic. So I got on a plane, traveled to Rio, spent two and a half months in Rio. Just the best thing I've done. I, Mm. when I look back, I have, there are no negatives, right? So I was able Mm. to spend a summer in the sprawling urban space that was both residential and dense but also you have favelas that are, they don't necessarily, these people don't always have formal land recognition. So the government could raise them whenever they wanted to, but they hadn't yet, or they're actively seeking land tenure. But I mean, that's one aspect to it. But the part that was probably most impactful for me was recognizing that everything I had ever been taught about informal settlements and those who live in them was basically a lie. That the narrative Mm. to me had been, this is dangerous, don't go. Like before I actually left for Rio, people said to me... Quick question. So when you talk about informal settlements, would would that be like the American equivalent of like living off the grid or something? It's more like people mostly refer to them as slums. Okay. So, yeah, a person will put up housing wherever they can. Mm-hmm. However, okay. the person who runs this organization, so out of respect to her, I wouldn't call the favela a slum because she says that they're not, they're not the same thing. So I typically just say informal settlement because the land okay. tenure, land rights are not always formally recognized mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of land speculation happening. So whether or not they're able to stay there permanently is really up in the air. And there's a lot of really great people who are working to advocate for these individuals, which is what I was doing in this, um, at this NGO for the summer, is that we were doing community profiles. So my friends and I would travel, and they weren't friends with the, initially, so these are just people yeah. that I met there, but we ended up really loving each other, and we still are in contact, and we would have to, <laughs> we'd walk, so, like, for example, we took a really long-ass walk through the Tijuca Forest to look for this 
elderly woman <laughs> in a house where she had not had electricity for five years. The part that was really just just insane was that she was living with her mother who had broken her hip a few years before. And so she was using a generator every single day, not to actually, you know, have a working fridge, not to um, do anything that would require electricity. It was more so to make sure that this woman could um, stay alive. And the government Mm -hmm. did not want to recognize her property rights. So every day she was wondering, like, I don't know what's going to happen. And if she can't get property rights, she'll never get electricity. Wow. And so, and I mean, that's just one example. This woman is living in a very isolated space. We walked for like two hours trying to find her. We all, we wondered the entire time. We don't know if she's actually out here, but I think that's probably part of the reason why she's able to stay for as long as she has. But you know that when they decide to build something there, you know, she's going to be the first to be removed. And then you have Mm -hmm. other people who are living in much more densely or more compact areas which again, the government isn't providing resources. So they're not providing electricity. They're not providing running water, but you know, they're not living without those things. So what has happened is that the community has decided to provide it themselves. And so people will put the cords up. They will create, um, they'll get water running some way, somehow, because you have to, you have to, there has to be some level of creativity. I remember going through a favela, getting a tour, from someone who uh, has an organization within the favela, like an actual resident there. And she showed us the recycling system in which people did recycling by hand for every single person who lived in the favela. So we're talking about hundreds of people, right? And they, I have photos I can probably send, but you just have people sitting with these tubs and they're going through every single piece of trash, pulling out what can be recycled because the city's not going to do it. But they wanted yeah. to do it themselves. These are incredibly sustainable spaces. And I like I left Rio thinking, okay, so I like I have my foundational experience from undergrad. I have what I picked up in my master's program, and then I have this experience I have this experience face to face with these people who are vocalizing what they need they're asking hey i need you the government to give me running water i need you the government to give me electricity and they're denied and they need to they they do it on their own and to me that really parallels the u.s in which People, you know, like, and I'm thinking about the the city council meetings you're talking about, Tommy, where you have people coming in, come and talking to these, uh, the planning commission, saying you need to get this done, and it isn't happening, and then people will try and meet the need on their own, and then it gets struck down. And so, part of what has drawn me to planning or urban planning urban development is that I think there are so many people who are living in a space in which they have been self-sustaining for so long and have been doing a pretty damn good job of it 
but I don't think that that is their job. I think that meeting your basic needs, especially when it comes to resources similar to electricity, clean water, green space, that shouldn't fall into the hands onto the shoulders of the residents. It's something that your planner, the planner should be doing, should be advocating for, for you. So my, like my long-term goal is to do this kind of work. I just don't really know <laughs> what context it's going to be in. Yeah. But it seems really complicated in like we've created a system full of barriers to even begin to do something like that. So that was our part one of our conversation with Vicky Fanaby. You can follow Vicky on Instagram at I am not Vicky. And her latest project is the Urbanism Library. Um, you can check that out also on Instagram at the Urbanism Library is that handle. Um, for those who are interested in supporting organizations fighting housing insecurity, um, Feed the Movement CLT is a local organization here in Charlotte that is near and dear to our hearts. All the information will be listed in the show notes. And when we come back for part two, we'll be talking about community engagement, how you can get involved, and as always, the intersections of spirituality into the conversation. See you soon. Community engagement, it, it's something that is becoming increasingly more popular, increasingly popular in the U.S. So we have, um, there's lots of tools that are becoming more widely used. You have something like Bang the Table, which is uh, like an online community engagement tool that you can, I think you can create surveys, things like that. Or uh, there's a big push for more transparent data. So a lot of the times mm. people know what they're asking for, but they don't have the numbers to present. So there's organizations like Data Driven Detroit that will that has pulled together really extensive data on um, like the economy, housing, mobility, things like that. And people can, anyone can take it and use it. But so much of the success of those tools come down one to how receptive planners are and just how accessible those meetings can be so uh, like <laughs> it seems so silly but there's people don't always know how to get specific individuals involved <laughs> like you just assume that if you have a planning meeting at 6 p.m on a wednesday night if black people don't show up, it's because black people don't care. But truly, it's because they're working. They have kids. Well, yeah. That's what I was thinking about as you are sitting there saying that. I was like, so the people who really care and are passionate and want to be involved are the people who are trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And what you just said, have, you know, have kids, have jobs, or who might not have transportation, or there might not be public transportation available to where the meeting is being held. Mm. Right. I, I'm just I'm sitting here processing because that was 
one, it was a lot of information, but it was a lot of really, really, really good information. <laughs> like I, we've, we've never had a, a, a conversation on housing or planning this extensively in this space. And, and um, when we, you know, and I think our culture is generally action oriented. And so people are tr- always looking for tangibles of like, what is it that I can do in my journey of, of being anti-racist to, to begin to change some of these systems and structures. Um, and so I guess like to the layperson that wants to get involved and wants to go to these planning meetings and has this time, what even do they need to know about like these meetings at, at, at the city level? Like, <laughs> I don't even know where I would start there. <laughs> you should be able to access um, an agenda for those meetings, which is helpful. Unfortunately, not everyone posts them early enough. Mm-hmm. We got to shame those folks. That, like You shouldn't be posting the agenda for a planning meeting two and a half hours ahead of time. On top of that, some people need, you need to get a ticket to talk during a meeting. Mm. And sometimes... They don't put those up early enough either, or they put it up mm. too early and then it gets filled for someone mm. who is at work. They can't fill it out. And it just, there's a, there's so many barriers to community engagement. So unless someone is consciously ensuring that it happens, it likely won't. Mm. So if we're trying to reach and get more diverse contributions to for example, a new regional housing plan. If you're not actively going into those communities and you're just relying on planning or uh, city council meetings, you're not gonna. It's not going to happen. You need to meet people where they are mm-hmm. to do this work. And not every single, or not every planner is willing to put in that energy. Unfortunately, does meeting people where they are does that have to be from a planner's perspective or with a planner's particular skill set how do you mean um like again i guess like what so you know planners they they train and they they know specific things to look for and i guess what i'm hearing and what you're saying is there needs to be we need to root into organ organizing right Uh, Mm. going to the going to the ground level um and seeing what do communities need versus trying versus trying to maintain a separation or a distance? Um, it, it's sort of like we carry over like in, from the evangelical world the same white saviorism of missions work, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. and and so is there? Can anybody do this or like what? What if someone wanted to organize around? urban planning and assessing what neighborhoods might need to be better advocates of it. What do, do they need to have the skill set of a planner? Can a layperson jump into it? What would that look like even? Um, I would say that the skill set required of a planner is pretty amorphous, you know? Like I said before that there are people who don't nec- like who view themselves as planners. I will I'll send you the link to this person, but they have there's this really great article from them where they talk about how they are a therapist to the city, Mm. that the city is their client. 
And that is not a view that is popular. I was really, really shocked when I saw it. It was so beautiful. Mm. <laughs> but we're viewing, we're viewing, we should be viewing the people who become planners or the people who are related to planning. Cause I'm technically not a planner. Like I've done the coursework, but I have never yeah. served specifically as a planner, but yeah. I do think that I have the skills of a planner because I'm, I think that my focus on bettering communities and ensuring equitable growth in communities mm-hmm. is what planners should be doing. And yeah, we should be tapping into organizing. There are so many people who are basically urbanists that they don't know it, but everyone has opinions about their city. And you have, you have so many uh, community leaders who may not be working at the courthouse, who may not be working at um, like in the planning division, but are able to do the work of a planner, if that makes sense. So you have, yeah. you have people who have already engaged the community and they already have the information available. It's just a matter of us somehow connecting the two. Mm-hmm. Interesting. One of the things that I'm, I'm that comes that I'm thinking about um, in one of the reasons I think I think because. I still go to a spiritual community and Austin Channing Brown was with us last year and we got into this conversation about um, organizing and how churches can step into their anti-racism journey around organizing. So whether that be organizing around housing, whether that be organizing around criminal justice reform, Mm -hmm. um, but specific, like, do you have, um, one of the things we haven't talked about necessarily is sort of your spiritual journey, which is also an equally wonderful conversation. Um, but do you think, you know, a lot of people root into the spiritual aspect of these conversations on permission to be, do you think that church spaces have a role in this work, um, and when, when and, and traditionally in a lot of spaces, they've been perpetuators of the harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So this is going to be a hard question for me to answer, and it might be really circular. <laughs> but <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> churches do perpetuate a lot of harm. I kind of hate the word gentrification now, but if we have to use the word, they have been they are gentrifiers. Mm-hmm. So you, like you know the the city church that comes in, it's like we got to save these poor folk Mm -hmm. and then you know you know (laughs) but i do think that in any community you have anchors and sometimes the anchor is the community center sometimes the anchor is the library and sometimes the anchor is the church and the anchor is pretty much right where every person goes to receive assistance, goes as a safe space, what have you, whatever whatever services they can provide, whatever role they're serving in the community. As Christians, you know, like I, I well, one, I'm not a Christian anymore, but I would say that so much at, at the time that I was a Christian, I thought of, I thought about this all the time. Like, what is motivating me to do this? And I ultimately decided that 
God wants me and demands of us to meet the needs of those who are less fortunate, those who are unable to necessarily meet it themselves presently. And I think the role of the church, if I remember the question correctly, <laughs> the role of the church in urban planning. These, these questions is, meander along, so let yeah, the answer meander the role, is fine. <laughs> the role of the church in urban planning, I think, is just to ensure that equitable development happens. And I don't really know like what how is, they're- What does that mean though? In terms I don't know. Of, yeah, yeah. It's it's complicated. Like I really don't freaking know. Mm-hmm. Because I'd like I'd like the church to have a more active role since they are so present within these communities that perhaps need need help the most. But I also don't want to fixate on that as I do want there to be a separation between church and state. And I think to really place themselves as those who would distribute resources isn't always the best move. I don't know. It's it to me it's really it's complex. I haven't really sat with this long enough. I always just thought that, like I said, God wants me to assist people in the ways I know how with the skills that I have. And I think that would be the same calling for the church. I just don't know how they can do it in a way that that feels less like missions work because it i can easily see it becoming transactional like if you come to church on sunday we'll give you some food or if you come to church on sunday we'll like xyz i don't like that You said something so profound earlier, and I think it applies here. You said that you won't make money from helping people. And if the underlying motivation, which it so often is, from the, is to bring in resources, what the church is to bring in resources, if that's the underlying motivation, then of course they're going to approach it from a, a saviorism perspective. Um, it's true. And so I think if churches or spiritual spaces, any spiritual space is going to step into this work, they have to be committed to an anti-racism journey. Um, they have to be committed to disentangling their theology mm-hmm. um, from from the racist past, especially churches based here in the U.S. of America. They have to be committed to from divesting from white supremacy and uh, and recognize that they have been the perpetuators of it, that they've, you know, and, and so much of my learning this year in, in this pandemic season has been learning about how we organize around churches essentially to perpetuate harm to other people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. So what I, I just want what would you, Talk to us a little bit about your spiritual journey then. I'm really curious about that. And uh, hopefully we'll, we will, we'll tie it back around, but I'm really, that's such, such an interesting, um, where are you now with that? Um, 
or where you where, where you where you journey what what has the journey looked like not necessarily you know i don't want it i don't want to present it as uh you know Finite. tell us about the more yeah tell us yeah what like i've reached the end yeah, i made my right, decisions right. uh, <laughs> uh you know every day is a new day to tell <laughs> about your existence <laughs> uh, so I realized a while ago, and I still have this fear, that much of my adherence to Christianity was based on a fear of hell. Mm-hmm. I don't like I don't yeah. like the idea yeah. of burning up for eternity. <laughs> it scares the fuck out of me. <laughs> and that's why, you know, for so many years. I was just pray every day. If you don't, it's fine. But you got to pray even harder the next day. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to college, I drank for the first time. Oh, it was such a mess. I wish you all had been there. But I remember <laughs> sitting on the curb, completely obliterated. And I looked to a friend and I was like, I need more Jesus in my life. And I was just like, you can't even enjoy your first drunken experience without panicking about damnation. You're pathetic. Oh, my God. <laughs> and. Trauma. <laughs> Trauma. <laughs> and so I reverted back to what was very strict, like, don't masturbate. Don't drink. Don't think lustful thoughts of people because you, you don't want to get banished to the underworld. And it's stress, it's stress. So at, at one point, at some point, and that was, you know, two, two or three years ago, I really started assessing, like, am I even happy as a Christian? Are we able to be happy as Christians? You know, take away the whole we're being blessed thing. Take away uh, joys of new life in Christ. Like, am I actually having a good time? Is any of this, is this something I can really engage with? Or am I just scared of retribution? Am I terrified of meeting with a God at the gates of heaven and have him say, sorry, you can't come in? Like, <laughs> Oh my gosh. That yeah, I'm resonating so much with all this. If you tonight and appear before God, he should say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Fuck you. Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I don't believe in that God, y'all. So that's why I say that yeah. my God is female, and yeah. So, but anyways, that's right. Your story. your story. Focus. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like it for then. It, so basically, what happened is that I started reassessing what what I even liked about Christianity, and it was not a lot, truthfully, mm-hmm. like. I think for a lot of people, they can say, well, Christianity or going to church taught me a lot about giving back to others. I didn't get that. Christianity didn't teach me anything about uh, racism and how to handle that within within the community, the supposedly diverse community. It didn't teach me a lot. And we, I mean, I could talk about other things that like really fucked me up, which is how my parents weaponized God to try and uh, form me into a person that I'm not you know, like all that stuff. But at, at some point I just said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm not having a good time, which probably could be the worst reason to ever give up Christianity. Like this sucks. 
I'm out. But <laughs> that's what happened to me. I think there's something and, intuitive in that though, right? There's, yeah. Yes. Like there's I've an, always had way. a hard time engaging with church. I have a hard time sitting and listening to a sermon. It feels like I'm being talked to when I think that there should be a horizontal structure in which everyone's just talking and learning from each other. That this this person supposedly is the only person I could gain information from. Oh, it just ne- it never sat. Structure, yes, yes. I love it. Like <laughs> think about you and your friends, right? Meeting up on a Sunday. Like you guys are all the same faith, and this is your church. And you guys just talk about it. And I, you know, it's possible that I could still have been a Christian had I had that upbringing, but I'm having a very hard time shifting into something like that. Yeah because I've been so disconnected from the Bible for so long. And I also kind of just don't want to read the Bible. Like, I don't want to read it mm-hmm. at all. It, when I, th- I don't either. <laughs> I mean, well, people served God before the Bible existed, technically. So and the translation we have is not accurate. It's the translation. Um, you you alluded to this earlier about your parents being uh, immigrants. You technically fall into the category of immigrant as well because you came over um, to age two at two, right? And so, um, how do you think that experience affected the spiritual teachings and practices? um mm-hmm. as well it, uh, you mentioned you know the church not teaching you about racism and um i gu- i guess like from from an immigrant's perspective um what was that experience like well i guess it wasn't something that my parents really focused on it wasn't high priority mm-hmm. some of the earliest churches that i went to were predominantly nigerian Okay. And yeah, actually the best church we had been to was a predominantly Nigerian church in downtown Minneapolis. And my parents plucked us from it. Actually, it was my dad. It was motivated by my dad. My dad has a tendency to attend churches. And then once he like beasts with someone, he just leaves. He doesn't really address the issue. So I've been to many, many churches. <laughs> he loves mm-hmm. beefing with people. <laughs> so... So that it definitely contributed to my fall from Christianity. I don't want to call it a fall. My departure, I suppose. Yeah, it's definitely not a fall. And even within, like, as you're as you're saying that, like, I want, like, I, we, we could introduce the whole conversation on patriarchy and yeah, masculine, toxic male masculinity yeah. within that. Yeah, and, and yeah it's just conflict and. <laughs> The, the, <laughs> the way evangelicals approach, or Nigerians, I can say, approach ev- evangelism, it's, I found that it was much more black and white to them than other evangelical churches that I went to, at least for the longest time I thought it was. Because not only was I trying to meet these Christian values, but there's also... African like Nigerian values that I had to hit and so many of those values were supposedly motivated by our religious backing so like I had churches that wouldn't let me enter if I didn't wear a hat and I had pants on 
and that's something that I thought was absurd. pretty sexist. It's <laughs> absurd. Yeah, but that's yeah. what they—that's all they knew, right? Yeah. So I mean, it's all I knew. Like growing up, Jehovah's Witness. When I got baptized into the religion, my mom all of a sudden had to wear a headscarf if she was going to do anything spiritual in front of me, and that was like some of my formative examples of how women exist in the church. And when I reflect mm. on it, it's just absolutely disgusting. Like the, I came so, out of this woman's body and now she's having to do postures in, in a, or, or act in a way that defers to her 12 year old child because he's on this spiritual, mm. like, it, no, <laughs> it doesn't add up. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And so, I yeah, we, we're gonna have to have you back because there's there's even more that I that like we could talk about. And, say, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Bring it. Because <laughs> it's like how like how did how did that like we we talked we started talking earlier about like capitalism and that's a major at, uh, portion of, of this conversation. But I'm always fascinated how capitalism sinks into our religious and spiritual practices and then also directs like um you know we're like okay you need to go make money and, and do these things and god's going to bless you and <laughs> the church is a capitalist haven it's like why not be a capitalist the church wants you to be like, you said something earlier that was really profound um about capitalism and I think it has really, pro like, really powerful implications. Um, do you remember about the what we were talking about earlier with consumption? I wrote it down. I did too. What did I say? <laughs> you were saying that eth you said there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Can you yeah. unpack that? Well, I'm basically saying that as much as you want to untether yourself from whatever structure you find to be uh, unethical, you can't because we're all owned by like three corporations mm -hmm. that even if, for example, even if the item is prepared ethically in the United States, the materials yeah. for that may have been produced unethically mm -hmm. or sometimes ethically produced items aren't exactly sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so, and then on top of that, I'm a person who's vegan. And so I've always, I was taught for the longest time that like me eating vegan, ethical, like top tier ethical consumption. However, I'm realizing in like the past couple of years, like the last two years that I've been vegan, that that doesn't add up, <laughs> that I could be more sustainable or ethical in my practices if I didn't, if I stopped eating chia seeds and quinoa, which are imported and actually ate locally produced beef, you know, that like, there's always going to be a tug of war with your decisions. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I don't like is that we're putting all this pressure on the consumer to make good choices and to be better when we, I think at, at our hearts know that it comes down to the 
corporations to change their labor chain. That that's that's profound. And so I guess in, in terms of that, when we when we place housing in a model of capitalism and we think in terms of progress, where are we going? And like I know that's a massively big question, but where do we even need to go? I mean, and you you bring up the point so well of like, and I think we when we talk about nuance, it, it truly is like this tug of war. Um, when we think about rooting into anti-racism, when we think about co-conspiring and co-creating, um, and we want we have all these aspirational ideas. And when we go and evaluate the work and we're like, shit, I'm still in this model of capitalism and I'm still in this cycle of perpetuating oppression by my choices and and how I show up. Um, So I guess, how do these things, housing, planning, and and capitalism intersect? Um, And what might you say is where we need to go to begin that pathway of liberation? For people disaffected capitalism planning and housing intersect because housing is viewed as something you earn versus something that you mm. should receive as just as a human being mm-hmm. and so when you can put a price on something like that and ensure that it's some that like that it's the people are excluded from it that well one we're we're like only increasing the value but also (laughs) we're creating a system in which so many people lag behind are unable to access this what i consider to be a right where we're going nowhere fast gonna be honest i like (laughs) it's not i don't foresee this getting any better because as long as we continue to say that housing is the best investment you can make, that real estate is the best investment you can make, people are always going to be wanting to increase the value of their property. But affordable housing can't actually build increase in value. It can't be a good investment because it, it's still it wouldn't be affordable housing anymore. So now we're seeing, right, that all of these properties are increasing significantly in terms of cost but the wages aren't matching it and it's because it's like we're like yeah duh build up the value yeah Yeah. what i want to see happen is that we stop giving a shit about how much something increases in value i don't care that is not important to me i don't even personally want to own property i don't care that much about it i think it's kind of like cool but until people rid themselves of the rationale that you have to that your housing has to be a permanent investment and then after that i need to purchase more so that i can rent it out to people and then supposedly provide housing to people when really that housing like you didn't provide it you're not providing housing that already existed loser like you're just you're just making it inaccessible to individuals. You're putting it at a high price so that you can make a profit. So until one, 
like I said, people rid themselves of the notion that all real estate needs to be profitable and that we, and then we start prioritizing housing people before making money. And when we start to consider that inclusive development, inclusive growth, inclusive everything starts by making sure that every single person in the community is safe. Every single person in the community has their basic needs met. And every single hierarchy, whatever tool that you use to measure this, always says that people need to be housed first. I mean, so, Maslow's like, we, yeah, Maslow's like, like in nursing, get the like, in it's shelter. It. Yes. <laughs> it's a basic human need for survival. Yes. So, yeah, I, but the issue is that, one, people are not becoming anti capitalists fast enough for my liking. And, you know, I didn't become an anti capitalist formally until last year. And frankly, I was a little slow myself. So if we could all just hurry I'm this still up. slow. I'm still working through it and I'm still trying to like understand it and have the language. Tommy, for it. capitalism can eat my ass. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what what helped you get there? Were there resources that you recommended? Honestly, it was people on Twitter shouting at me. Not at me specifically, but shouting. Like they're they're saying, you cannot be XYZ if you're not an anti-capitalist. When I thought, and a part of it also is me just being, <laughs> living in DC, being a young professional, and I'm looking at the cost of all these apartments, and I'm like, I can't shit. afford this shit. <laughs> Which is, I think, pathetic, right? Because I've never actually had to consider the cost of housing. I thought that I could just go into Trulia or Zillow and say, okay, this is my budget in unit washer and dryer done and, and then it was just you can't afford jack shit so i'm just okay if i cannot afford this if i am struggling i'm seeing someone who works at subway someone who works at a small shop i don't know how they're doing any of this and people don't care because we just say they should go live elsewhere. Like, I know I could get cheaper housing living in rural Michigan, but girl, I don't want to live in rural Michigan. I want to live in D.C. So you better find me some cheap ass housing because I cannot do this for a long time. And like, mm-hmm. that is, and it's the responsibility of the municipality, of the state, federal level. Like, we need to ensure that people are getting housed. That should not be up for debate. And the fact that people are upset because, and Trump saying that we're trying to ruin your suburbs, he's just saying we want to protect these white spaces from, you know, these dangerous black people who are in public housing. And so definitely there's, there's there's a stigma about public housing. Absolutely. There's a stigma about low income individuals because we see that we see that poverty is a failure, a moral failure versus just something that comes from the environment that you're in, that no matter how yeah. much you work, yeah. how much you try, you yes. may still be poor. Yes, yes. Preach. Preach. And all of these things are interconnected. All these services are in- interconnected. So when we talk about, like, for example, we discuss housing first and then dealing with addiction later when it comes to housing those who are unhoused. Mm-hmm. We're saying, like, you got to earn it first, which to me, like, 
I don't think that should be the case. I think it should be the opposite. Like we should really just be putting people into homes. You can't address these mental blocks until you are in a safe space. Yeah. And so the, the healing not, can't begin. Like, and I, no. I, I used this example um, a couple weeks ago when I, I was just thinking, you know, like when, when somebody has a trauma, we have mm-hmm. to create the conditions for healing. Sometimes mm-hmm. that means we have to break a bone and reset it. Um, mm-hmm. Or we have to pin something. And, and so, I'm down with, you know, you know, we're having these conversations surrounding like sloganeering and things of of defund the police. And I'm like, yeah, we need that. We, we need radical, we need to burn it down. And we're not talking about literal fire. Maybe. So we could. (laughs) (laughs) But it does it. The more and more that I have these conversations, the more I talk about it, I'm, I don't see any other way mm-hmm. than to root out. It, it, it's like there's a, a, a dark, not I don't want to say dark, but like uh, anti-blackness coming out right there. But mm-hmm. there's this, this low vibrational um, energy that keeps us holding on. And, and it's, it's rooted in, in, in trying to find security, really. But we have an abundance, as you stated earlier, in which mm-hmm. we can provide for everybody. We just don't want to, or we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're so selfish that mm-hmm. we, we think that we need to be more flashy than other people. And so, um, oh, and it's, it's cast is, is really helping mm-hmm. me kind of uncover that her book cast right now is really helping mm-hmm. put a lot of that in perspective. So I, it's I, on I my stack. Yes. <laughs> I actually got her? both her books. I just <laughs> haven't gotten around to them. They're dense. But she she is a freaking phenomenal storyteller. I'm just sitting here like wrapped, wrapped. I don't even realize sometimes I'm listening to a whole history lesson. The way that she weaves in these stories, I'm just like, Damn. wow. Yes, yes, mm. black women. Yes. yes get it. <laughs> what were you saying, Becca? Oh, I I was just saying it's when you were talking about it being rooted in it's it's literally in the dna of this country and that's why i do believe it has to be burned down mm-hmm. because it the roots have the roots are tainted mm-hmm. they are literally tainted and it's not something a pl- fire comes to cleanse mm-hmm. and we have to, it's just what it is like we're not going to capitalism isn't going to go away without a huge shift and some level playing fields knocking us white people off of our asses um Mm. it just and i'm not wanting the you know lives but to be cost you know to take lives but at the same time there are hundreds of black lives that are dying every day (laughs) and so it's like or more than hundreds why? I don't want lives to be taken, but I sure as hell don't really give a shit about property. No. <laughs> well, I mean, I sat here trying to think is like, well, if one person buys a house, then they would have 
the government should make it a rule that they have to, you know, buy a certain amount of land for, but, but like, it just gets so, like, it just gets so mumble jumbled and it gets so messy. Like, I'm just like, it's a clean slate. Yep. Just clean. Yep. So, there's too much, there's too much white patriarchy. Mm-hmm. White. But even within all that, like, you being here today, Vicky has given us, given the listeners, some deep, deep, deep things to think about and mm-hmm. to be disrupted by and how we exist in our system. And mm-hmm. um, I think the most profound thing for me, though, that, that you said was talking about just being able to be in the experience of summer camp and be mm-hmm. around women who were for you and have that example and have that representation mm-hmm. and have that support to say you can do this thing and speak that into you mm-hmm. um, and i firmly believe that anything that we co-create from this point on is only going to be rooted in the relationships and how we're able to leverage those relationships and the mm-hmm. representation within those relationships and so if anybody takes anything out of this conversation today you said it was 20 hours over three years just 20 hours now well, 20 course, days 20 days sorry 20 days over, over three years three year span that's less than a month and i know that like there was planning that went into that but it changed your entire trajectory mm-hmm. and the knowledge that comes alongside that um and I, and I think that it is so important when we think about and we have conversations about opportunity and access that mm-hmm. we see, to me, that's a testament to the power of having access to spaces mm-hmm. and, and influence in spaces. And um, I think that you're just in spaces that you're transforming the world. So, and I just love you. I adore you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. That's our conversation for today. Vicky, come back because yeah. we need a lot more yes, learning. Please. Oh, yeah, that was fun. I'd be happy to come back. <laughs> I'll come crawling back into your inbox sometime soon. <laughs> Yo, that was our show. Thanks for listening to Permission to Be. Um, thank you to our guests. So if you want more information, head on over to permission to be podcast.com to check out the show notes, get some more information on our guests that we post over there. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating. If there's somebody that you want to see on this podcast telling their story, we also want to hear from you. So make sure to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram permission to be podcast and we'll see you soon.